This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nelly. Our guest this week is Nathan Kaufman, Vice President and Omaha Branch Executive of the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. America's crop insurance industry provides individualized protection on over 300 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with the Fed Reserve's Nathan Kaufman next. Today's Open Mic segment is brought to you by America's crop insurance industry, which is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. Providing individualized protection on more than 300 million acres of farmland, crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. The agriculture financial climate is enduring an extended downturn, challenged by large supplies, smaller demand, and weather. Nathan Kaufman, who serves in the Omaha branch of the Fed Reserve Bank of Kansas City, says the farm equity balance sheet is surprisingly strong overall, but that doesn't tell the whole story. I think you're certainly going to see a lot of variation around that. Um, We have seen um, indicators that we would track as it relates to solvency, thinking about debt-to-asset ratios rise over the past few years. Of course, there's going to be some operations that have seen maybe more stress than others, but those increases still have been relatively modest in comparison with what we might have seen, say, leading up to the 1980s. So it's important to characterize the environment in the direction that it's trending, but also just the overall magnitude of what we're seeing. Is it safe to ask the different areas or the segments of the ag economy that you monitor to be able to offer analysis? Yeah, we there are some segments where there's been maybe more stress than others in some regions that have maybe had more challenges than others. As we've described that the last few years, um, more recently it's probably been uh, in areas that are concentrated in corn and soybeans. Um, prices there have just generally been low for some time, uh, maybe even lower than break-even for some time. Uh, the other, though, has been the dairy industry in, in parts of the country, especially where there are a lot of small dairies. There have been some challenges there for a number of years. Uh, the cattle industry is one where we did see some significant stress a few years ago, but there had been a little bit of a rebound. Um, conditions have maybe stabilized there a bit, but it is one where I think there's probably still some risk. Are there particular areas that you can say really look good? I think there are some segments of the industry where uh, some of the high-value um, production, uh, I think that there's maybe more optimism in certain segments of, say, the West Coast or in the South where uh, they may not necessarily be products that are as standardized as the kind of commodities that we would think of in the Midwest and the Central Plains. They're still going to be exposed, though, to international markets and any changes in the outlook for the global economy. So I think while there's a number of differences from product to product, I think that some of the overarching concerns are still the same. If we've been talking a few weeks ago, I think if we were looking at the trouble spots that dairy might be high on the list. Has the new sign-up and the new program helped to alleviate some of the issues in the dairy industry? I probably can't offer a lot of depth in terms of the comment on on sign-up specifically for dairy and the extent to which that maybe has mitigated some of the stress. I think the the overarching um, challenge in dairy has just been one where 
Uh, there's been a lot of milk being produced, fluid milk being produced, and maybe a, a slight downturn in terms of demand for that, domestic demand, at a time when, you know, so what's that, what that's leading to is just a persistent environment of low prices. And so for dairies that are operating on relatively small scale, uh, that creates a difficult environment to maintain profitability over the long term. And so that's been something that has, I think, weighed on that industry for a number of years. I think you are seeing some signs of maybe some of the larger dairies uh, doing a bit better just with the opportunity to take advantage of some economies of scale. Aside from dairy, are there other trouble spots that we would have on that list? I think, uh, again, some of the some of the concern that we would have is maybe your mid-size operations that are concentrated in corn and soybeans. Um, just given some of the limited opportunities to sell at a profit, there had been maybe some marketing opportunities for corn specifically earlier this summer when there was maybe some anticipation of lower production, but some of those prices have come off again. Um, and so I think for those mid-size operations that don't have the ability to, uh, when they do lock in profits, really take advantage of, of large economies of scale, I think it's a little bit more difficult. Some of the smaller operations maybe do have some opportunities to find ways of enhancing income in other places, um, and they're maybe not as tied specifically to just a large number of, of, of bushels in terms of maintaining their profits. If we look back, how important to the bottom line were the MFP payments last year? And from what you see today, how important are those potential MFP program payments in this crop year? I think certainly when you're in a difficult environment, any additional amount of cash flow helps to offset some of the challenges. And so last year, I think that payment did provide a little bit of a temporary boost. I think it's likely to provide a temporary boost. Maybe last year was most specifically in a couple of commodities. And I think this year is, is likely to do something um, similar, uh, maybe most specifically in the Midwest and, and also in the Southeast where payments are, are likely to be a bit higher on average. Um, I think that it still doesn't necessarily change the longer-term view, and I think that ultimately prices will be a reflection of supply and demand. So while those ca that cash injection might help in the short term, it's not clear the extent to which it necessarily changes the picture going into 2020. If I look at the demons that are surrounding this industry now and providing challenges, I would say supply is one of those, and perhaps some of that does come from a loss of export markets. We might also suggest that the weather has had a big impact into the, the outlook that we have. And you might even suggest as well that the loss or the, 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 the lack of demand, uh, even from the renewable fuel industry, might have had some impact in the market. Is there any way to, to sort out how each one of these has had an impact or you just have to look at the opposition overall? I think it is difficult to see, to isolate any single effect. I think as, as we look at some of the broader trends, that's kind of where we try to glean more of our information. And so if we think about the last five years, it has been the case that we've seen a steady build in inventories. Um, the first few years of this downturn, we actually were seeing demand growth remaining relatively strong, or it was at least at a high level. Um, one of the things that's changed, though, really the last 18 to 24 months has been a bit more of a slip in terms of, of global exports and some of the concern around around global demand for agricultural products. Biofuels could be a part of that in some places. And so when you're already at an environment of inventories being relatively high, any marginal reduction in the number of or the quantity of exports that might be uh, demanded would have an outsized impact on prices. 
And so I think that's maybe more of the concern is just following how those have trended over the last five years rather than necessarily how any one thing has changed at a given point in time. Speaking with the Corn Growers Association uh, and, and their representatives over the past few weeks, they're talking about the uh, small refinery exemptions that overall are up around 4 billion gallons of renewable fuel. Well, at 2.8 to the gallon, that's about a billion and a half bushels of corn. This market, I would have to believe, would look a lot different if our supply was a lot smaller than it is today. I think there probably are some individuals that have tried to quantify what that impact might be in terms of, again, that would be a source of increased demand for corn. I don't know what it would mean in terms of of, uh, cents per bushel additional for corn as an example, but I think it tends to have maybe a little bit more of a perceived impact when some of the other elements of demand, in particular the export markets, are showing some signs of weakness. I think had we not been seeing some of the, the concerns around exports, you know, it's possible that maybe there wouldn't be a feeling that it has has such an impact. But at this point, any marginal change um, can be significant. House Agriculture Ranking Member Mike Conaway told us last week that the administration more nimble than Congress to be able to step in and, and to provide assistance. And they've done that, uh, did it last year and then again with the MFP program this year. It took a lot longer to bring farm policy together. And uh, the the former chairman, the ranking member, now suggested they did the best they could with the money that they had. So, Nathan, if you look at the the tools that farmers have, the ARC, the PLC, uh, the crop insurance and prevented plant this year, are these tools, are they adequate for the storm that we're in? I think the most important thing for for any producer really to keep in mind is that they're they're going to need to maintain a disciplined approach to risk management. I think those tools that are included in various components of the farm bill can be part of that, but there still need, each producer still needs to have a very well defined plan of how they're going to go about making decisions either during the course of the year, including marketing plans, uh, but even maybe more specifically as they're thinking about a five year outlook. Uh, like I said, there were some marketing opportunities earlier this year to make some sales for corn, but some of the data that we've looked at would suggest that you know there maybe weren't all that many sales being made. And so I think just maintaining a disciplined approach to risk management is something that lenders are also going to be very tuned into. Uh, so together with some of those tools that are included in the Farm Bill, um, you know, I think that there can be some opportunities. Thinking then about one of the other bellwethers for the industry, and that's the value of land. Some have been very surprised that given commodity prices that we've seen and stress on for particular farms and, and commodity groups, that land prices have, have held up as well as they have. Do you still see that? Yeah, we haven't seen a lot of changes in, in farmland values, and part of the reason for that is that there still is not a lot of land being sold. Um, it's not clear, I guess, if there was a lot of land to go onto the market, that there would be sufficient demand to prevent prices from, from falling a bit further. But at the moment, there's not a lot of land being sold, and so that has helped keep prices relatively high. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why either producers or investors or others might still be interested in farmland, and the data that we're still tracking would show so if there are decreases, those have been have been relatively modest. I would suggest the strength uh, or at least the outlook of the ag economy and individual farmers will depend a whole lot on how land values hold up because of the equity that they hold to secure operating expenses for producers. Yeah, I think that's true. When we look at the data for the sector overall nationally, we know that farm land accounts 
accounts for more than 80% of the balance sheet. And so any marginal changes that we would see in land would have an outsized impact. For lenders, they're also looking at that as a fairly reliable source of collateral. And so to the extent that producers have some equity built up in land, that gives some options for restructuring when there are some short-term challenges. Uh, so that is a key indicator that I think will be important to monitor in the next couple of years. What do you see from the ag lenders, whether it's the independent community banks, the Farm Credit Administration, those others who are supporting producers uh, in their plight to keep up their occupation? How are they weathering? Um, you know, surprisingly, I think that a lot of the the what we would look at at some of those lenders would show that returns have, have held up okay. Uh, delinquencies on farm loans are up a bit, but it's still not to the point where we would see it being uh, even as significant as it had been coming out of the recession in 2008 and 2009. So we're mindful of some of the challenges on profitability and what that means for liquidity, both in the farm sector and for lenders that have a concentration in agriculture. But um, at the moment so far, the the increase in financial stress has been pretty modest overall. Again, there are instances from one lender to the next where they're all going to have some borrowers that are showing more stress and, and they've had to you know maybe have some difficult conversations a number of different times, but overall the the financial stress has been increasing pretty modestly. Is there any way to put our arms around just how big that group might be? Well, some of the delinquency rates that we track from lenders, both at commercial banks and that data would also be available for the farm credit system, would show that it's it's really only just above 2%. Um, and so thinking about how much stress there has been, even as it relates to things like bankruptcies, there has been an increase. And, and again, we're cognizant of, of that and, and mindful of the trend and making sure that we're, we're following it appropriately. But at the same time, the, the overall share has, has still been relatively small. If I recall from the Last fiscal year, if we're looking at the Department of Agriculture, the funds that they had available for guaranteed loans were used up pretty quickly. Is that still a category that's that's running close to capacity? Um, I'm, I'm not familiar with the data most recently, I guess, to be able to comment. But, again, looking at the last few years, you're right, that has been the case, that demand for FSA guarantees has been pretty strong. I think that commercial banks are also using those as a way to supplement uh, some of the risk that they would see in their own portfolios. And uh, I think that is one uh, indicator that we would look at that would track pretty well with the comments that we've heard of maybe some of the more marginal borrowers having more difficulty uh, in terms of, of creditworthiness. So I, I think about what we're talking about here, this conversation, you're consistent with the other lenders and, and uh, financial institutions that we've spoken with, that, that yes, things are challenged, but no, we're not in a crisis situation yet. We've chewed up equity, uh, but we're still fluid. But yet, if you go to the farm shows, and even just a few days ago, uh, the impetus for helping producers in their mental state, talking about suicide prevention and and some of the others, uh, there appears to be one statement from the spreadsheets and and another emotional response that is in other areas. Can, Can you bring that into focus at all? Yeah, so I think there's a there's a few different things that I might offer there. I think one is first recognizing that some of the challenges that we've observed as it relates to liquidity would suggest that there is there has been a burn in equity. And so while it hasn't um things haven't gotten to the point where we would describe it as a crisis and delinquency rates are increasing only modestly, we are aware that working capital is deteriorating and essentially farmers are needing to rely on some other sources to supplement the challenges that they're facing. And so, for example, they may need to rely on off-farm income or a spouse that's had to to go back to work so as to be able to, to make some of these loan payments and not allow things to become more difficult. 
So I think recognizing the the picture overall would suggest that things are tight and it's and it's tough to um, even think about how you might make investments that would allow you to be profitable long term or grow long term. Uh, so it's been a, it's been a challenging five or six years in that respect. Even if uh, the loans are being repaid and you know the data would still suggest that you know we're not in a crisis. Again, I think it's more the trend of where things have moved to and the adjustments that have needed to be make, made to make sure that we don't get to a crisis. Do you track farm machinery and values of used equipment? Uh, we follow some of the data on that, and uh, you know, several years ago, I think there was uh, a lot of concern about um, an influx of the the available um, used machinery, in particular, and what that might mean. Uh, I'm not sure what the data would show more recently. I think there was probably some stabilization after you had the sharp reduction in income and commodity prices, uh, but I think that is one where where others have also expressed some concern. Looking at, again at the, the cross-section of agriculture, when we talk to the Farm Credit Services, Farm Credit Administration, one of the areas that they're really watching out for is the young and the beginning farmer. Is that a category that you track separately from the, the group as a whole? Um, similar to what other groups have probably voiced, yeah, we would we would follow some of the concerns there simply from the fact that they have less equity available when there might be some challenges to be able to restructure some of the loans as others would, for example, using farmland. Um, so that would that would be a group that I think just by the nature of where they're at in terms of the available equity uh, maybe has faced some potential for increased stress. When we talked about challenged uh, commodity groups and organizations, obviously dairy was on the list, but the swine industry also had gone through a tremendous uh, capital investment, not just on farms, but on packing and the rest. And, and when the loss of those markets came about, it really hit them hard. Do you play the, the what-if scenario with regard to African swine fever and, and what might be on the horizon for the, the pork industry in the U.S. if those markets open up? Yeah, I think that the African swine fever has had a pretty big impact on global trade flows in general, but even um, just global demand for certain products, whether that is pork or whether it's uh, soybeans being exported to, to feed China's uh, hog population. Um, I think that it's still difficult to get a number in terms of what the overall impact might be, and there might still be some concerns about whether it's been contained at this point. I think that part of the challenge is that there's the possibility that as African swine fever has spread, that it, it, it could potentially reduce some of the demand just if, if China is needing to switch to some other alternative meat products, and, and that, of course, has implications for pork producers elsewhere. And part of it is also just recognizing that fewer hogs means fewer need, a, a less of a need for soybeans. So it's difficult, again, uh, with one of those together with the tariff environment to determine what the sole impact might be, but we do think that it's had a pretty significant impact overall. If I look at the Chicago Board of Trade uh, with regard to new crop for 20. Corn is around $4 a bushel. Uh, soybeans uh, just hovering under nine fifty, and, and new crop wheat around $5 a bushel. Nathan, regardless of all the circumstances that have brought us these particular marks today, with regard to the industry, crop farmers, what happens if we stay there? 
I think that some producers will still be turning a profit at those prices. They have maybe managed to reduce costs to the point where they can be competitive at those kind of prices, uh, maybe especially some of those larger producers that have found some ways to, to gain efficiencies and operate on economies of scale. I think there's others, though, that just on the nature of some of the investments maybe that they've made or become more extended, that those still are not prices that might be might be long-term profitable. So I think what you see is still some producers doing well, and I think holding uh, repayment rates on farm loans up pretty well, and others that, that face ongoing challenges. And so as you look at the aggregate, I think that's why we've seen things progress only modestly, because you've got a group on both sides that where some are still doing well and some that are that are struggling. Well, from a guy whose family did not come through the 1980s, the one thing that I see that we have today that we certainly didn't have back in the 80s was a favorable interest rate. I would have to believe that as difficult as this storm is, the interest rate that's being charged on these loans has got to be a, has got to be a saving grace for some operations. Yeah, I think we recognize when we think about things that are different than the 1980s that the interest rate environment is one of those. We we do know that interest rates overall would represent a pretty small portion of the overall direct expenses that most producers would face, but that interest rates can also be tied to other things as well, things like farmland. Um, I think some of the other things that we look at relative to the 1980s, though, we certainly have, and we've talked about it earlier, a different environment around crop insurance and some of the tools that that producers would have maybe at their disposal um, now relative to what they might have seen in the 80s. Nathan, this is a very difficult time with agriculture. It's good to know that you and the other members of the Fed are there with your hand on the wheel and, and watching closely. One of the, the joys that we have of this program of Open Mic is allowing our guests to uh, to share thoughts that they would have in closing. So instead of me asking a question, sir, you have the last word today. Um, I think that I would again reiterate that it has been a, a challenging five or six years. I think that it's important to note that some of these challenges have predated some of the concerns that we've had with trade, but the importance of trade can be sometimes understated just on, in terms of magnitude because uh, we've been in an environment where there's so much that's been built up in, by way of inventories. So any reduction in terms of of markets can have an outsized impact on prices. I think for the sector as a whole, as we think about the long term, it's, it's important to keep in mind just what, how much uh, demand for agricultural products has a tendency to push prices one direction or another over a very long time horizon. So those are going to be some of the important things to monitor, but again, we do still track some of the ongoing challenges as it relates to finances. Our thanks to Nathan Kaufman of the Kansas City Fed Reserve Bank, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Nelly.